Welcome to the WNCT Podcast Network. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of What the Politics. Our guest for today is a professor from Meredith College here in North Carolina, and we're going to explore both parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, and analyze the pros, the cons of each, and what's going on right now and what the future of both parties are going to look like. So I'm going to go ahead and let our guests introduce themselves to the audience. Sure. I'm David McClennan. I'm a professor of political science at Meredith College. Where I also direct the Meredith Poll, which is a statewide poll of public opinion uh, in North Carolina. And another thing that we do is we ask our guests a personality question. And our personality question for you is, if you could have dinner with any president, alive or dead, who would you have dinner with and why? Gosh, you limit me to just one. That's a tough one. (laughs) You'd have to go back to George Washington because you just wonder... As the first president of the United States, what was it like? You had nothing to go by. And he had his faults, but to think you got up the first day in office and you said, okay, I've got this Congress, I've got the Supreme Court, what do I do next? Mm -hmm. And so I think I'd like to ask him a lot of questions about how did you make all this stuff up? Well, that that is pretty interesting. Yeah, you got to go to the to the founder. You got to go to the first one. Um, That's right. So one of the things that I found while I was doing some research on on uh, for for our podcast episode today is I found a quote from your website, and I'm going to read it out loud. And the quote says, the ideal for Aristotle is that well-informed people participate fully in the political system and that an informed citizenry citizenry starts with a rational understanding of political issues, their causes, and their effects. So that quote, in the context of today's political climate, political culture, how how are you feeling about the application of this quote and how it goes with um, our, our political polarization, our lack of polarization, or just the climate in general? Well, I'm optimistic. Uh, that's the first thing I would say. But I'm also realistic. I think that quote is not very applicable today. I mean, if we start with the first part of it, you need an informed citizenry. I mean, we have people, we have a newly elected U.S. senator who couldn't name the three branches of government. And so that, to me, is very discouraging. And so if we say that we have a lot of people who don't know what the Constitution actually says or what policy actually means, it's very difficult to think that we're making rational decisions either as voters or elected officials. But I am optimistic. What I do in the classroom is I get to interact with a lot of young people, and I'm very impressed with young people. I always tell them that My generation messed things up. It's up to you to fix things. And I don't say that just to pander to them. I really think they're a very engaged group of young people, um, more politically engaged than, say, 20 years ago when I was just getting into teaching. Hmm. That's interesting. That may, that that's something that I think Emily and I can can definitely attest to as well because we're both we, pretty, we just graduated last year 
And com- I think compared to our parents, we're a little yeah. bit more politically aware of what's going on. So that's that's definitely, that is optimistic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so going into dynasty families within the United States. And what I mean by that is that there seems to be a long line of succession of families that are political families. We have the Clintons, we have the Bushes. What is your take on on these political families? And are they keeping us from having a true democratic institution? Well, if you go back to the founding of this country, that was never the intent of the founders, because they had come off a monarchy that they separated from in 1776. So I think we've had sort of familial dynasties since the founding with the Adamses, and then, you know, the Roosevelts were related. But, you know, I think what it does is it perpetuates Mm -hmm. uh, a kind of political class that excludes a lot of people. Mm. I mean, I always, you know, tell my students, I said, look around Congress, there are not a lot of people that look like you. And I mean that both in terms of age, gender, um, racial and ethnic backgrounds. And so I think if we talk about the Clintons, the Bushes, whatever dynasty, now we're starting to talk about the Trumps because there's a rumor going around that Laura Trump may run for U.S. Senate in North Carolina. And I'm not making a comment about any particular person here when I say this, but I'm saying it is excluding new voices that we need at the table making decisions because... A lot of times these family dynasties are isolated from what's really happening in this country. Mm-hmm. So do you think going with the dynasty families, you know, these families kind of putting themselves almost on a pedestal for years and years in the political scene in our in our society, do you think that can be dangerous in a sense that they're kind of heightening themselves almost to – royal families in a sense. That's the real danger if we have too many people from a particular family. I mean, there are other Bushes that are serving in office besides, you know, obviously George H.W. Bush was president and George W. Bush was president. And then, of course, Jeb ran for president. But, you know, the, the, the danger is we get used to having a family in there without necessarily thinking, what does that family really stand for in terms of policy? And is everyone in that family qualified to be in whatever elected office they serve? So again, it's, you know, again, to me, it's, it's almost monarchical in that regard, but it's, you know, we tend to elect people based on name recognition. And so that kind of goes back to the opening quote that you started with, which is an informed citizenry. If all we're going by is whether the last name is Clinton or Bush or Trump, Mm -hmm. rather than what the person's qualifications are and what they represent, then I think we are to blame for that. Mm -hmm. So going going a little bit more into the parties specifically, we'll start off with analyzing the, uh, the state of the Democratic Party right now and then going on to the Republicans. But one thing that I've noticed... Um, recently just coming off of an election year is Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. They've been Democratic leaders for a long time. And now one is in charge of the House and the other one is in charge of the Senate. Um, When you're a political leader for that long, do you think that it gives them the the experience to, to lead correctly or can they be extracted from the population and from reality? 
Well, I think it's a double-edged sword. I mean, there are certain benefits to experience. You know how committees work. You know how to work the levers of power. But on the flip side is that you develop certain habits and ways of thinking that can be very detrimental. I mean, look at the, I guess the best way to say it is disagreement within the Democratic Party between the younger, more progressive members of the Democratic caucus, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and some of um, uh, her fellow members, and Nancy Pelosi or, or, or Chuck Schumer. You know, they are representing different generations, not just in terms of age, but in terms of thinking. Um, you know, Nancy Pelosi has been very cautious at times um, in bringing up legislation or deciding what things go in bills, whereas younger, um, less experienced members are more aggressive and willing to take a chance. And so I think it's not to say that someone older cannot lead effectively, nor someone who is younger is better, you know, in office. But, you know, when you have leadership, and this extends to the Republicans as well, when you talk about Mitch McConnell, you're talking about leaders in their close to or in their 80s who are leading their respective caucuses. Mm -hmm. That's a long time um, being in office. And they represent a different generation of political ideas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So for these younger you know, leaders, uh, you know, Democratic leaders coming into the House and Senate, a lot of them are being aligned with the Democratic Socialists. So could you define, you know, what that is for us, um, what a Democratic Socialist is? Well, I guess I think about it as a spectrum of political beliefs. I mean, you know, if you start with, you know, the political center and you start moving left, you know, you get hear the term moderate, then you get hear the term progressive, then you get to hear the term liberal. And I guess to me, it's an extension of being um, more liberal on a lot of social and economic issues and a belief that government can solve problems. And so when you look at someone like Ocasio-Cortez or Tlaib or any of the more outspoken younger members who claim that label of democratic socialist, they don't see it as a negative. They see it as a positive. We think government is here to solve people's problems, whether that be poverty, racial inequality, whatever it may be. And that may cause even some Democrats who call themselves progressives or moderates to kind of recoil and say, well, that's moving too fast. Mm -hmm. And there seems to be with a lot of the younger people uh, elected to office, Madison Cawthorn here from North Carolina, and again, the, the people from the quote-unquote squad, is that they seem to really lean into, ex not extremist, but like the far side of their political views. Um, do you think that is in response to what's been going on over the course of years where people are just frustrated because they don't see any sort of movement or progress? Is this something that has been... I don't want to say cultivated, but is, is this something that has been brewing for a long time? Well, I think it's two things. Um, number one, we can't get away from the sort of mechanics of um, elections. We have very gerrymandered districts. And so if you look at the 11th Congressional District in North Carolina, where Madison Cawthorn was elected, or you look at uh, Ocasio-Cortez's district in New York City, these are, you know, extreme districts to say, um, and, and I don't mean that in terms of being pejorative, but 
you know, they are fairly conservative in terms of Cawthorn's district and fairly liberal in terms of Ocasio-Cortez's district. So I think part of it is the district where these folks come from. Uh, but also, you know, they are younger and re reflect the sort of beliefs of the younger generations. Um, you know, if you look at most public opinion surveys, like the Pew Research Center surveys, um, millennials and Gen Zs are more extreme than their older counterparts. And so Cawthorn comes out of a kind of a generation of conservative firebrands. Um, he looks up to someone like um, a Donald Trump, not in terms of age, but in terms of style and beliefs. And Ocasio-Cortez looks up to someone like Bernie Sanders, um, again, as who they reflect. So when it comes to Kamala Harris, you know, she has is the first female vice president, um, the first black vice president. So her qualifications, she brings a lot to the table. So what are some of those qualifications that she's bringing to vice, the vice presidency that people are kind of overlooking in a sense? Well, I mean, the, the combination of both personal and political. On the personal side, you know, she is um, extraordinarily smart and extraordinarily articulate. I mean, I think everybody who has seen her, whether um, when she was running for Senate or running for president or when she was selected as Biden's nominee for vice president, you know, all commented that she's a great debater, a good public speaker, able to, you know, capture ideas. Um, but also she has some other qualities, um, personal qualities. She's a graduate of an HBCU, um, and that um, is significant to a lot of people um, because that has not got a long history in the United States of HBCU folks being in high elected office. But, you know, she's also got the kind of experience, political experience, that make her very, um, very good for being in the Senate or the vice presidency. I mean, when you come up through the criminal justice system as a prosecutor, a DA, attorney general, you know, those are very significant offices, even though, you know, again, those were in California, but still very significant offices in terms of learning how the law works. And she was able to translate that into a very successful Senate career, even though she served one term in the U.S. Senate before she was um, elected vice president. Again, she became a rising star serving on the Judiciary Committee and grilling Supreme Court justices, drawing on her experience. So, you know, it's not just that she checked certain boxes that people wanted to see checked, but she brought a lot of experience and a lot of personal qualities to the table. Mm -hmm. A lot of a lot of criticisms about the Kamala Harris and, and Joe Biden kind of partnership is the fact that they're really both kind of still in this quote unquote establishment. Uh, they were chosen by the quote unquote Democratic establishment. Um, what is your view on what this establishment is defined as? Would you agree with that sentiment? Would you disagree? Um, does this establishment, does it exist? Well, establishment is one of those hard words to define because it seems to be used by people who don't like a particular person as a as a negative term. Mm. You know, is you know, in the Republican side, if you're establishment, you're not with Trump. So, on the Democratic side, establishment can be you're not a Democratic socialist. 
But I think that's a little unfair to both Biden and Harris. If you look at the composition of the cabinet they're putting together, I mean, it's obviously the most reflective of the American society of any cabinet in U.S. history. So you've got a person who is Pete Buttigieg, who is openly gay. You've got uh, Deb Holland, a, a, a indigenous person who's going to be the interior secretary. So just in terms of life experiences, you've got uh, uh, the Biden administration is putting together a team that, you know, is unlike any other team we've ever had. And, you know, I think it's a little unfair to kind of say Biden and Harris are establishment in that they've been in office less than two months. And so I think we ought to give them a little more time. You know, the COVID-19 relief bill is going to be a big, big push on their part. And then, you know, they've got some things on the agenda, like the Equality Act, um, HR1, which is the Democracy Act, and a number of other things that if they are able to get these things through, they would be some of the most progressive legislation since FDR. Mm, mm-hmm. So moving on to the to the Republican Party, I think one of the thing one of the things that we definitely wanted to talk about what's going on is this kind of civil war that's going on within the Republican Party. It seems as if uh, former President Donald Trump threw a wrench into a lot of tried and tested values of the Republican Party, um, not values, but kind of just like their experience. And, and I don't want to say establishment since we just mm-hmm. sort of went over that term. But but then again, that was a term that he did use is draining the swamp, going against the establishment. What does Donald Trump's presidency, what does that mean for, for the Republican Party? Well, I think we've seen um, Donald Trump take over the Republican Party. And so whether we want to say he drained the swamp or he um, really kind of put um, people like the Bushes out of business. I mean, because one of the first things he did in the Republican nominating process in 2015, 2016 is basically diminish um, the Bush. And so what he has done is taken a lot of the standard names that we're used to in the Republican Party and make them really less powerful. So what I think Donald Trump means for the Republican Party is he's taken the brand of Republicanism and made it into Trumpism, which is a, you know, ideologically very different from Republicans uh, in the past. I mean, he doesn't favor free trade uh, at all. He's anti-immigration. And if you go back to Ronald Reagan, who wanted immigration reform, he's just, like totally taken some Republican policies and principles and said, don't need them anymore. But he's also um, stylistically uh, changed the Republican Party. It is really a party where they're more against things than for things. Um, If you look back to his reelection campaign and what the Republican National Committee did prior to the convention of 2020, they said, we're not going to have a party platform anymore it's what Donald Trump wants. So that is very different. So now we're left in 2021 with Donald Trump out of the presidency, but still exerting tremendous influence over the party. Uh, you know, he's got a targeted list of Republicans who voted against him in the impeachment proceedings that he wants out of the Republican Party. So it's, again, um, a party now that stands for what Donald Trump stands for. 
Do you see the Republican Party, you know, coming together more uh, over the course of these next four years now that um, Biden and Kamala are, you know, the presidency is flipped over to the Democratic side of things? Do you think this is, a, you know, an opportunity for the Republican Party to come together almost against the Democrats, but it's a chance for them to come together? Well, they'll come together. The question to me is how successful it, will it be in terms of winning future elections? Right. You know, if you look at what Joe Biden is doing so far, and again, it's a very limited um, uh, tenure so far, you know, people are very much in favor of the COVID-19 relief bill that's being debated in Congress now. Mm -hmm. uh, look at things such as the $15 minimum wage increase. People are generally in favor of that. So many of the Biden policies, at least initially, seem to be very popular. And if the COVID relief bill makes it through and um, it does help the country recover both from the public health crisis and the uh, economic crisis, it, you know, the Republicans are in a real bind because um, you know, people ultimately decide with their own circumstances what party they favor. And so, you know, again, you can be the party if no, as long as the opposing party has some bad ideas. If the opposing party has good ideas, being the party of no is not a great place to be. Mm -hmm. And then kind of going along the same lines about what's happening within the Republican Party is recently there was um, CPAC, which is, I, I, I personally, maybe because I'm not as informed about what was happening at CPAC, but I was surprised to see uh, the former president give a speech. And I think uh, Fox News spent about five hours of, of coverage on the speech. Um, do you think that even even with the former president's um, president at CPAC, there's also the fact that he filed um, his own party, his uh, for his own party to exist. Do you see the former president coming back to run for office? Well, I think four years is a long time. Well, it's probably you know, two and a half years before he has to make the firm decision. You know, I think um, there's a lot that will take place in those two years. The next two years, he has legal issues, financial issues. Um, you know, like I said before, if the Biden administration is doing well and the policies are producing results for the American people, that makes it less likely, I think, that Donald Trump is the party's nominee in 2024. If the Biden administration policies, you know, the country's in economic difficulties or, you know, we're in a foreign crisis or something like that, you know, Donald Trump could come and make the argument, see, I told you so, you should have reelected me. But, you know, so I think it's, you know, he will exert a lot of power over the party. I mean, he's already said at CPAC and other places that he wants to run primary candidates against Republicans who voted for his impeachment. And so we'll know within the next year and a half before the 2022 midterms whether Trump's influence uh, sustains itself. You know, if Republicans have a bad 2022 and Donald Trump is very vocal, um, they may not want to turn to him uh, if they lose a lot of seats in the House or the Senate in 2022. They may say, well, this guy, you know, didn't help us at all. So I think there's a lot, a lot of time left before that decision is made. Mm -hmm. And so kind of a, a little bit of, of wrapping up the podcast a little bit, but bringing it back to, to North Carolina. 
Um, Senator Richard Burr announced his retirement. He's not running for re-election. There's been a variety of Democrats already putting their name in the arena, and I believe two Republican um, senators that have announced their campaign, or there's one Republican that definitely announced and another one that's going to. There's rumors that Laura Trump might run. Um, where do you see <laughs> this Senate seat going, given that we have a Democratic governor and we have two um, Republican senators currently? Yeah, I think two things um, indicate to me that it's going to be a wide open field. First, um, it's an open seat, and those don't happen very often, and so those tend to draw lots of interest. But second is that we really are a purple state. I mean, the fact that Donald Trump won the state and Roy Cooper won the state uh, both in 16 and 20 indicates that we're pretty closely divided. And so that means that Democrats and Republicans are you know, equally likely to win the seat if they put forward good candidates and run good campaigns. So I think it's likely that we'll see a whole lot of people on both sides of the um, uh, ticket running for their respective nominations. So we may see names um, that we don't anticipate um, running for that the Senate seat. It'll also be a very expensive Senate campaign because not only do North Carolinians know that's an important seat, but the national Democratic and Republican parties know that that could make a difference in terms of who controls the Senate. So I think we'll see a lot of interest nationally in North Carolina's Senate seat. So, you know, I don't know if Laura Trump will run or I don't know if, um, you know, former governor Pat McCrory will, will run, but we'll see a lot of interest. Mm -hmm. And so this is, this is our last question for you, and it's kind of wrapping up the podcast and going back to that quote, um, uh, talking about an informed citizen, I can never say that word, citizenry. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, what, as, because you're, you're a professor, in, in your experience, what is the best way for people to look at politics, have an interest in politics, and not necessarily go straight to emotions, but rather look at something from a rationale perspective? Well, my advice to my students is always experience it firsthand. If all you get, um, if you get all your political news from Twitter or other social media um, um, outlet, you know, you're probably going to be very reactive. Uh, what I like my students and others that I talk to when I talk to civic organizations, and I said, you know, experience politics firsthand. Go to a city council meeting. Um, attend a, a, a rally. I mean, this summer, I was so impressed by my students. They would go to Black Lives Matter rallies, and then the next day, zoom in on a school board meeting. And so they're experiencing it without that intermediary, um, you know, somebody posting on Twitter or you know, some random statement that somebody makes. And so you can learn a lot by seeing politics in action. And so I think that's one of the best um, things I ever did when I was a young person is I worked on campaigns. I went to city council meetings. You know, I watched C-SPAN, believe it or not, and watched actual the House talk, um, you know, without somebody telling me what they were saying. So that's one piece of advice, but also, you know, Listen to podcasts, you know, read things, watch things from a variety of different sources. If you get all your news from one side of the equation, 
you're going to have a very stilted view of politics. But if you get multiple perspectives, you'll always be better informed. Definitely. Well, yeah. Listen to our podcast. That's, <laughs> That's right. That's the first thing I'll tell them. Thank you so much for joining us. Those are all the questions that we have for you today. Thanks for inviting me. It was a lot of fun. I enjoyed talking to you guys. All right, everyone, that's going to wrap up this episode of What the Politics. We release new episodes every Tuesday. You can find those on WNCT.com under the Features tab on the WNCT Podcast Network, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much for joining us, guys, and we'll see you next time.